Okay, and we are live. Welcome, Simon Watson. Thanks very much for coming along to the first IOSH West of Scotland Health and Safety podcast, video and sound content. No problem. Thanks very much for the invite. I'm glad to be here. So, a bit of an introduction about you, Simon. You're the Head of Safety with Siemens Mobility Limited Rail Infrastructure UK. And you're also my former boss and first interviewee of the podcast, just to add a bit of extra pressure. <laughs> Fantastic. <laughs> so I'm going to start off, Simon, just going right back to the start, if you want to tell us a bit about your background, where you started out, your kind of earliest memories, where you grew up, and we'll start from there. Wow, okay. Um, let, let's see, where, where did I start? Where did I grow up? Well, I had an... an a slightly different childhood to a lot of people, but perhaps quite similar to a lot of people that end up in health and safety. Um, I, I've come from a military background myself, and my, my father was in the army, so we spent uh, probably a good 20 or so years moving around the world of him, having lived in most places in the UK, um, Northern Ireland, we've lived in Germany, uh, we lived in Cyprus, so we've had quite a quite a good uh, kind of varied travels uh, around the world, which I think really interesting childhood. You know, for me, it was quite disruptive. I think you know every couple of years, picking up, moving home, uh, changing schools, and I was probably one of those ones that didn't uh, didn't adjust too well to to that, and um, probably probably rebelled a little bit, and 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 at the end of it, didn't really come out with. Um, an appetite for for having a good for having a good early you know uh, schoolhood um, uh, qualifications education and um, I think I can still remember now I I, I left with um, one C five Ds four Es and an F for my for my GCSEs and my C was in drama so I don't know what that says um, but um, yeah that was before it became an academic drama course I think back in the, back in the uh, mid nineties early nineties so anyway. Um, I think it was it was it was um, a bit like following your father's footsteps. Yep. I joined um, the army at a young age, at sixteen and a half, and um, I went through uh, training. And um, obviously, I went to, to go and join. I say obviously, um, but I went to join the infantry because that's who would accept me with my qualifications <laughs> at that stage. Um, and I spent just under ten years um, there had a bit of a had a bit of travel um worked in all over the uk but had the opportunity to see some operations in, in northern ireland in in kosovo and and got some great experiences of working in uh, jamaica in belize um spent some time in gibraltar spent quite a bit of time in africa so really really well rounded experience i think in, in the military um which you know interest it's interesting i don't have a um, you know, a, a crazy story about um, why I got into health and safety towards the end of, of my career. And it wasn't a planned end of my career. I, I injured myself. I broke my legs quite badly. And, um, and during rehab, the uh, physical rehab, not, not um, for any other reason, um, I was talking to one of um, a colleague there, a peer, and he was telling me that when he was going to leave, um, he was going to get into health and safety. And although we'd done quite a bit in the army in health and safety and dynamic risk management, you know, as you would expect, yeah. it did, um, it did perk my interest, so to speak. I actually felt like it was something that I could get quite passionate about. And, um, and if it wasn't for that chance meeting in 
that would have been 2003 or so, 17 odd years ago, um, I probably would be here today potentially. I'd either still have a career in, career in the military or I'd have done something different uh, potentially altogether. And I, and I do remember the conversation around, um, around uh, um, you know, what's it like? Uh, you know, what do you really do? And he said, said to me, you're in lots of conflict. You know, there's loads of arguing. And I thought, brilliant. I like conflict. I've come from the army. I'll be great at it. <laughs> and um, you soon find out that uh, that's not the way to go in the job. But um, um, cool. certainly it does. It's a job that keeps you entertaining and, and um, certainly keeps me, um, keeps me passionate. And uh, yes, that's really the start of, start of my journey into real health and safety. Awesome. That's really interesting, Simon. Can you tell us about your first safety job then? Mm. The first role that you've moved into a health and safety focused job? Sure. I mean, um, before I left the army and I was still in rehab, I had a, a small period of time, six to 12 months, where um, I, I really couldn't do what would have been my typical job. And so um, I, and I'd only done some basic, I'd done my NEBOSH uh, general certificate at that stage in 2004, I think. And um, and I went and seen essentially the, the quartermaster of, of site I was working at. That's the person who's responsible for the administration for the, for the barracks. And, um, and I said, look, you have the responsibility for doing health and safety, which, let's be honest, they, they, it was a couple of policies on the wall back in, back in that time in, for the military. And um, I said, let me do it for you. You know, give me something to do. Keep me occupied. And so I, I went off with no idea what I was doing, but had a bit of a, um, an interesting time trying to figure out what it really was other than just a bit of paperwork on a wall. It was very different in, 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 um, in that time, certainly in the military as well, and having to work through two sets of legislation. But it, was, um, it gave me six to 12 months or so of trying to figure out what it was really about um, and a little bit of experience. After that, I um, had a great opportunity um, to go and work for Skanska. And I went to work, um, work for Skanska, but specifically on what their, uh, the North London Gas Alliance, which was um, a, a large scale um, gas mains replacement network program yep. all, across, all across London. Um, really good job. My first opportunity to work with health and safety professionals and, uh -huh. um, and to be quite, you know, quite humbled and grounded and having the confidence to learn from, from some great people. Yeah. Um, and I think as well, you know, when, when you're learning from people, I learned as much from my peers in, in health and safety as I did from actually some really solid supervisors. I, um, I, I always say, you know, it's, it's good to be a sponge when you don't know a lot and just to sit back, observe and learn. And you tend to find out who the people are that you can trust quite quickly and who the people that actually enjoy um, mentoring. And, and, uh, and that's not necessarily your 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 colleagues in the same role as you that's people that you know i had some great construction guys that and um and site agents that have been doing the job 20 30 years and i would stick by their side and and um, and learn as much from them as possible and so i had some really privileged opportunity at, at that time to to work with people and to and, and to learn with people and to um and to uh, understand that craft of of uh, working on the gas line so it was really good um Again, what was what was next for me after three years? I had a bit of a change in in life circumstances. Um, was going through a bit of a dilemma of what's next for me. And at that time, my cousin was working for Wally Parsons in Australia, and we had a fiftieth um, a fiftieth um, birthday party. It was her auntie and um, or my auntie and her mum. However, uh, we we met, and she convinced me that. 
the, the the market was booming. It was. It was two thousand eight. It was the next. It was the start of the next um, the next uh, boom cycle for for mining and oil and gas in Australia. And at that stage, I was lucky enough that um, a company over there, a big heavy civil engineering company, was doing a kind of global recruitment tour, working their way around the Middle East, um, America, and Europe. And um, I I'd put my name in the hat and and came over and, and they came over and we, we had an interview. Really, really, um, it was probably the most unique interview I had. And um, when I went in for, for this conversation or this interview, um, sat with the two directors and they said, yep, CV looks fine. Um, you know, I'm confident you've got the qualifications. I can see them here. We don't want to talk about that. You know, we're fairly confident you can, you can do the job. I want to see if you fit with the business and your intentions for wanting to come to Australia. And for that, it was more about them it was you know we, we're comfortable you can do the job and you can do a good job um, I want to know if you're going to survive you know and um, and uh, uh, one thing that sticks with me with this conversation was they're trying to sell a job to me a certain area and um, and I actually didn't realize what it was um, but my response probably wasn't the best response and it was how would you like to go to a place called the Pilbara you um, you're in the desert every day you, um, you're, in remote, you're in a remote site, um, you wake up in the morning covered in dust and you go to bed covered in red dust. It's absolutely brilliant. To which point I reflected back on my military experience and thought, this sounds absolutely dreadful. Um, <laughs> and uh, I, did, I didn't quite understand. When they talked about camps, you stay in a fly camp. These were establishments that were set up to work in remote mining. And, um, and I didn't fully understand that. So I said, it doesn't sound particularly appetizing. So if you've got anything in Sydney or Melbourne, I'd rather take that opportunity, um, which actually turned out to be pretty good because they did have an opportunity in Sydney and that's the one I ultimately got. Um, but those camps we'll talk about, we'll talk about later, but it's, it's not in a tent. It's actually in quite, quite good accommodation that, that have been built in these mining facilities. But, um, um, so yeah, I got opportunity to go to Sydney. Um, visas came through pretty quickly which is really good. I mean, it, it was boom time. So they're opening the doors to anybody. Um, that's probably why they let me in. <laughs> and, um, and yeah, so went to, went to Australia on a, on what was called the water delivery Alliance. Right. And um, I picked up, they, they, it was a, an advisor role, um, but you, you were given areas yeah. and, and the job was to um, connect a new desalination plant that was being built to the Sydney water distribution network. And so we had to create um, a new pipeline. So it was a twin three meter diameter pipeline. So it was pretty, pretty big, um, pretty big pipeline. We had to take it 25 miles from a place called um, Kaima to Erskineville. So Kaima is an island off Botany Bay in Sydney. Yeah. And where they have a lot of industrial um, type facilities. And um, it was really exciting. You know, it was really, I'd, ne I'd never seen anything in this, in, in this sense, but it was really big, heavy civil engineering. We were, we had about 20 um, um, tunnels we had to um, shaft and drive. We had, um, we had, we built a, a custom barge in Singapore, shipped it over. This was a $40 million custom barge to the only one in the world at the time to twin lay two, three minutes, three meter um, pipes at the same time. So, you know, all the design work was, was incredible to, to actually just get stuck into something. Um, one of the most, um, exciting times was recovering the the tunnel boring machine at the end of the job yeah and that was to um to actually tunnel underneath botany bay dredge off the top covering 
um, block the tunnel with a concrete um, reinforced slab and then send divers down to inflate um, giant balloon bags underneath this 40, you know, 40 ton um, TBM machine, float it to the top of the ocean and then use a giant, um, giant jacket barge and a couple of, you know, two, 300 ton um, cranes and offload this. So re really, none of this stuff was happening anywhere, anywhere else in the world at the time. It was all Once in a lifetime type project. All mega projects, yeah. And I guess that was the great experience of Australia at that time in boom time. Yeah. They were the government and the um, the mining and, and oil and gas companies were spending 30, 40, 50, 60 billion dollars on a four, five, six year project. So, you know, these were the kind of biggest and the, the best experiences that you'd, you'd get. And for me, that was an opportunity to be selfish. I, yeah. I, I made some selfish decisions there to to focus on my career. Mm -hmm. Um, so after that project, that I came halfway through that project, and after just over a year, um, I was asked to um, go to uh, Western Australia, same company. Okay. And um, again, because of the boom market, they'd grown rapidly. They'd won about four or five billion dollars of work doing um, large wharfs. And these were two, three kilometers long out into the ocean, 60 meters high, and they were to be receiving. Um, it was all about increasing the capacity of the iron ore uh, market commodity market and so this is about get, be, being able to get in more ships to get as much oil off and get it to China right and that was essentially what it was about um, uh, and it was boom time really exciting you know 100 meter square jacket barges that are 80 meters in the air you, you know using multiple crane lifts um, and just really quite an exciting time but this is in a place called the Pilbara and um I looked after most of the jobs that were in that kind of western part of Australia, but most of my work was 2,000 k's away from where I lived. So I'd often be on a plane in the morning for a two-hour plane flight, um, get to work, spend a day or two, then come back, and then an, a couple of days later head back out again. And that was um, and that was another really interesting job because I'd gone from project work to um, being responsible for an area um, and multiple projects. And actually, it was you know, I had to spend some time finding my feet about what was required of me because you're moving into a very different type of role. Yeah. Um, and I ended up figuring out that um, I had this little, little um, kind of saying and it was around establishing policy. What's the governance um, that I need to put in place to, to make sure that policy is going to work? How do I provide guidance around those two aforementioned um, items? And then what's the assurance process that I have in place, the mechanism to make sure that all that is working smoothly. So that was that, 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 that policy governance, guidance and assurance. And I just, and, and I still live by that now, you know, yeah. if you can get those four things right, it's a really good staple framework for kind of giving yourself confidence that, you, that you're, you're doing the right thing, that you're providing the right level of support direction, but also you're giving the company assurance that you're doing and the, and the function is delivering the way it's supposed to be delivering. Um, so that, 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 that gave me some confidence that I had a structure in place and was able to deliver to that. Um, and then for me, after a couple of years there, it was, you know, there, there was a, there were other organizations that were doing bigger work and um, some more exciting work and uh, wider than Western Australia. So um, I got a great opportunity um, at that time. In fact, I was in a privileged position where um, I, could, I could look around with the experience I've just gained over the last three years to pick and choose a little bit. Uh, the yep. market was still booming. 
Um, there was still plenty of opportunity to go around. Um, and, uh, you know, I got the chance to choose the company, really, and um, the opportunity of who I could go and work for. And oh. so this is one of my, my, one of my first real strong mentors came about, a gentleman called Nick Martin. So if you're listening, thank you very much for the help you provided me over, over the years and you still do them in this day and time. So um, had a great, uh, great time there with a fantastic mentor. Um, and I learned an awful lot from, from Nick. And um, it's probably a really enjoyable uh, three, three and a half years there. And um, again, same sort of work. But this time um, we were involved in building gas plants. We're involved in, and that's downstream work, not upstream. Um, we built some aluminum refineries some petrochemical facilities, hospitals, prisons. Um, we sunk Perth um, rail station so they could build some um, high rises uh, on a place between Perth and what was known as um, Knightsbridge. So they could, be, they, they could do something with what was essentially wasted space. So again, oversight of multiple projects um, and a really, I guess, just a really exciting time and lots of experience to gain and um, lots of great people to learn from. Um, after that, I had, um, again, an opportunity to be selfish about myself. A great position came up to take on a general manager position. Um, it was a general manager, zero harm and quality. And yeah. uh, that was uh, for a company and that was, um, again, predominantly Western Australia. Um, unfortunately, that role lasted about a year and a half, um, and then I was made redundant. There was the um, the, the, the mining boom was uh, it goes in a boom bust cycle over in Australia. So it's normally a seven to eight year boom bust cycle, and the bust cycle materialised. And in the space of a few weeks, across Western Australia, I think there's about eighty thousand people that lost their jobs in the, in, in the space wow. of a few weeks, and the market is still not recovered now. So um, I was made redundant, you know, it's a tough time, yep. especially when, when everyone's being made redundant in your market and the opportunities are, you know, far and few between. You do go through some, um, some reflection, you know, you think, was it me? You know, did I do something wrong? Why was I the first, you know, why were we the first to go? Um, and I think the reality was it was such a, it was such a mass, you know, um, redundancy. You know, the whole business that I was in, all of the leadership team, were, were made redundant in the same day. So um, that, that the model there was um, because of the rapid growth, it was a decentralized business model across Australia and New Zealand. Um, and then obviously with the retraction of the market, they went back to a centralized business model. And so all of those um, regional posts um, were essentially made redundant. So tough time, but some rational thinking um, and some opportunities that started to materialize. Um, I wasn't out of work for very long, perhaps three weeks. I probably should have taken some, some more time to, to relax. Um, got the opportunity from a colleague I knew who had moved for the same reason, had, had moved to the Middle East. Okay. And um, in, into Qatar and was, um, was building a Navy base as part of those. There was a huge greenfields project for a port in, in Qatar in a place called Masaid. And um, there was an element of that um, which was building this, this new port. Uh, it had been going for a little while. It had been going for about a year and a bit. Um, and um, they were having some challenges. And so I was asked, you know, opportunity, you know, got some opportunity knocks. Um, you fancy coming over and, um, and doing some work in the Middle East? And I thought, you know, why not? My primary reason was there's no work in Australia right now. Um, and it's, you know, I'm used to working in the desert. And, it's um it's very similar work and so yeah I got the opportunity and went over there. 
and uh, and that was a, a, another different chapter of my life for uh, for a couple of years until that that project finished. It was um it was a really interesting time, a really challenging time. Challenging on on the fact that you've got you know culture and you've got multiple nationalities, and you've got a huge varying um, degrees of skill set and, and competence and education um, and just life experiences. And, and that's yeah. where challenges lie. Sometimes you think what we're doing is not particularly sophisticated and it doesn't need to be. Um, but, you know, trying to communicate with five different nationalities and five different languages, you know, sometimes having a 10 minute conversation might take, you know, 30, 40 minutes to, to have. Yeah. But, um, um, I, I do remember on a couple of occasions and um, about going to the airport to, to fly out on a, on a break and coming back in in the um, in the arrivals lounge um, and and seeing um, all of the uh, international uh, guys coming in <clears throat> might be the Philippines uh, India Pakistan and um, that's typically where we'd get our labor labor workforce from um, and the penny dropped for me on a couple of occasions of the experience that these people have when they were all stood around an escalator looking at it. I couldn't work out what they were looking at. And I kind of keeping a look at the corner of my eye and I realized they were trying to work out what it was um, <laughs> and how to get on it. Yeah. So, you know, they were kind of stop starting and, and, and moving about. And it was really, you know, it, it just made me think that tomorrow these men will potentially be on my project with 1000 pieces of plant and equipment in a very, you know, dangerous, inherently dangerous environment yeah, with yeah. no experience whatsoever. And so that was um, a real eye opener for me and how you can probably hear some of the tragic stories on the news at that time. Um, and the reality was you are taking people that have not experienced anything of this magnitude um, and coming into that that sort of dangerous environment, and, and I think something that's stuck by me in in, in that culture, and actually, um, it's probably stuck with me since then in, in 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 sort of how I approach things, and that's not setting your people up to fail. Yeah, but, um, that was something that that stuck with me a lot, and I, I give an example by that. I remember, you know, we 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 regularly hear in the industry in guitar that somebody else has unfortunately lost their life. They've been um, run over by an excavator or a vehicle or a dump truck or but when you hear about what this was and we're starting to see some of this behavior is that people would sleep underneath um, excavator tracks underneath dump trucks they would sleep in all you know they would sleep under overhangs of excavations that perhaps had a bit of a you know um, you know a bit of a collapse and were, were cordoned off or they'd sleep in the utility pipes that had just been laid because there'd be a draft going through them and at the time, the mechanism was, you know, if you do that, we're going to dismiss you, you're going to lose your job. And it didn't work. And when I thought about it, it was, you know, why, why are our people doing that? Why, why are they knowingly putting themselves at risk? Because it was known that this, this is a risk. And, um, and when we looked at it and I asked a few people, it was, well, you know, where, do, where they were going to sleep was actually right near the place where their bus was coming to pick people up um, to be taken to their food, uh, to the food hall or to be taken home. And it's a quite large site, it takes a long time for the vehicles to move around, but you don't want to miss your bus because you don't want to miss your lunch. And, yeah. um, and it was as simple as that. And what they would do is they would be in the 50 degree sun with no shelter. 
And so they would seek the shelter wherever they could. You know, what's the chances of vehicle driving off versus you, you know, um, having a severe dehydration issue by not being in the shade? So by not setting people up to fail, we put shade shelters at the pickup points, you know, bus stops, right? But we put water in them and fans and, and, and so on. And, and before you knew it, we, we stopped having people sleeping under vehicles. And, and for me, that's a very simple of not setting people up to fail. Um, so, yeah, and, and I think that lesson goes today. If you treat people with a bit of humanity and a, a bit of respect, where, wherever you are in the world, it's, um, it always goes a long way to making sure people do the right thing uh, by you. That's a great message, Simon. It probably brings us neatly on to the next question, which is, what's the biggest challenge you've faced in your career so far? Oh, biggest challenge? Um, you know, there's, there's a few that really, that really stand out for me. Um, I think that there is... Um, you know, thinking of strategic, so there's life challenges, right? There, there's, you know, what, where am I going next? You know, being made redundant was a huge challenge to, to overcome and think about what that was, what the impact was. Um, and I worked my way through that. I think, I think something for me was, you know, having, having left school with no education. Yeah. And then starting to gain life experience and, and, you know, a long time in the military and having some education there. Um, most of my education was picked up from learning and having having great mentors um but i realized i needed to to have to do more than that and it wasn't a particularly strong suit of mine but i had a had a burning desire to start off i guess this journey of learning and yep. i started to get i think i got a bit of an appetite for it um because what i started to see was the experiences i gained um I could now apply and understand the thinking behind it. And so I've got the experience, I could apply the theory. And I think the two of them together worked quite nicely for me. And I think sometimes when you come out of, with a university degree, and maybe you work your way straight from university to a master's, and then you don't have the experience, it can be somewhat, more, somewhat a challenge. And I think challenges in their own ways. But for me, um, I think my, my education journey was a daunting one, but one I knew that I needed to take. It's been going for about 15 years and um, I, I first started off after my certifications in 2004. Um, I, I did some Prince2 work to understand about project management and control, controlled environments. I think that that went really well to what, a lot of what we do in our, in, our, um, in our business is we're managing small projects, right? Um, whether that's on a project itself or, or, or you're doing activities that, that need to be managed. Um, I then had a a spate of, I believe it was planning supervision back in, back a long, long time ago as it's moved through CDM coordination and now is no longer, you know, no longer something that, that is a, a defined uh, role and title. But, um, and then I embarked on my MVQ4 at that stage. Uh -huh. um, then I went to the, um, then I went over to Australia and then I did a diploma in Australia. Um, I wanted to make sure at that time I was slightly um, slightly aware that I didn't have the Australian experience. Um, so I did, I did a diploma and I guess it was valuable to do the diploma because you always learn something out of it and you learn from other people as, as part of your, your education. But I think at the same time, um, you, you can understand quite quickly, you know, wherever you work in, in, in those types of, um, you know, first country, um, world that actually, 
it's much of a likeness. There are some differences, but they're predominantly the same. And the way we care for people, you know, is, is, yeah. is the same in England and the United Kingdom as it is in Australia and it is in, in America and it is, as it is in Europe. So um, there wasn't a huge learning factor there. So I wouldn't let that put you off if anyone's ever considering a move um, somewhere like Australia. I think you can pick it up quite, you, you can pick it up quite quickly. Um, I then did some learning on um, you know, project management. So I did another diploma in project management and then um, still had the appetite for it. At that time, I think the MVQ4 diploma had become a, a level five MVQ or, or part of the level six framework, I believe. And so I, I did the upgrade uh, for that just to keep myself in touch with, um, with what was going on. Um, and then towards the end of Australia, before the move to the Middle East, I really wanted to have a look at what an MBA could offer me. Uh-huh. And um, I'm, I'm, I'm really glad I, I embarked on that with the Institute of Australian Business. And I think, you know, people that think, you know, it's a general, it's a general tool and there's a, there's a, there's a lot of opinion about whether it's that adds value or not. But for me, I think I, I, I got to look at things in a different light, in a different slant. I wasn't going to change my career. You know, I was going to be, you know, a safety professional, but it let me understand the decision-making process for, you know, more about economics and why we do what we do, um, sure. why we spend the way we spend, what, what's the impacts of, um, you know, um, uh, the government policy on business decisions. And then how could that affect us in what we do? What's the byproduct of a bad business decision or a poor economy on the impact of keeping people safe at work? Um, you know, got to understand a bit around, you know, strategic supply chain network and, and how, um, and, and how for me to, I said a penny dropped a little bit at that stage, which is kind of starting to shape my philosophy since then is that what we do in our capacity and our, and our, and our advisory function is, um, you know, the work we do are the, is the outputs is the, is the output of a lot of other things. Um, yeah. we're managing the residual effects of things. You know, there's, you don't, you can't put safety in a glass and say, and fill a glass up and say safety this is what we do because that doesn't that substance doesn't really exist because yep. it's, a, it's a byproduct and so um i've learned to uh, and the way i like to operate now is to say what business you know what does a business do how does it do it effectively and is the byproduct of that going to give us good outcomes is it going to give us good safety outcomes good quality outcomes is it going to give us good financial performance and understanding how you can impact along the, the chain of business process where you can best impact, where you can best influence the output. And in our space, it's, it's good health, good well-being, good safety, it's good performance in that area. And so, and I think that's a skill set that, that we can, that we, we should focus on more. I think we often look at doing safety. And this is where you often get the term safety clutter. Right? We just do more safety things to, um, to just do more safety things for the sake of it. And actually is that adding value along the chain? And then is it giving you good safe outcomes? And if it's not, then some good question about why you should be doing it. The new IOSH competency framework aligns with that very neatly, that it's looking at the wider business now. It's not just about reading books and updating your CPD from a magazine article that you've read, or it's mm. a really focused CPD, getting involved in all areas of business and how that channels into the health and safety market. Yeah, I've, um, I totally agree. And actually, I can refer back to, I can remember it now, a diagram that Nick Martins drew for me on a wall. He used to love his diagrams. And I, and I do, I still utilize some of those to this day. You may have seen a few yourself. 
um, it was a, a pyramid and an upside down pyramid and, and essentially it was looking at as, as you're in your, your advisory capacity role, you need great tech, you need a great foundational base and technical knowledge to carry out that activity. But as you go further up, I guess, the hierarchy, um, it's less about your technical knowledge, although you still should have a, a good, great foundation, um, but it's then more about your, your management skills and then your leadership skills and ability and your ability to influence. And so um, as you go up that tree, your technical knowledge will tend to shrink um, but your ability to understand the big picture and to influence in, um, needs to increase as you go up. Yeah. Um, and I, I'm very happy, you know, I remember going out uh, on in, into um, the farm beyond review in Scotland. And, um, and, uh, and for me, you know, I'm, for when people are excelling and, and I'm learning from, from my technical team, I'm happy, right? That's really good because I, I shouldn't be a subject matter expert anymore in yeah. the technical details because if I am I'm focusing in in, in the wrong wrong place but I still like to think I've, I've got a good technical base right yeah. but um, um I, I would expect all of my my um safety professionals that work for me to have a better technical understanding than I do and I think that's something else as you as you um if if you choose to pursue your career in the way I did and that was in the in for a good part of it to be selfish to learn to understand where the jobs are that I wanted to learn from, the big heavy civil engineering jobs, the people I wanted to work for. You know, I, I, I got that opportunity to, to shape the, the career the way I wanted to do and to learn in, in, in that way. And that gave me great kind of experiences and, and understanding. But don't, don't ever let the change of an industry, you know, whether you go from civil engineering to mining to petrochemical, to roads, to the rail industry where I am now, to Thames Water working, um, working in um, production. It's, it's all transferable skills. You can, learn, you can learn on the job, but the important thing is just to make sure you bring that learning mindset and, um, and continue that. So don't, don't let the industry stop you. Sure, so you mentioned Thames Water there, Simon. Can you tell us a bit about your time there? So uh, yeah, Thames Water was um, uh, was my first job when I came back from the Middle East. Uh, it actually it, it was advertised um, a few years ago before I left Australia, and um, and, and it didn't materialise at that point. Um, but it, the same role came back up again a few years later, and so um, I applied for it, and I was fortunate enough to go through the the, the process and get off the job. Um, so I was the uh, head of uh, health, safety and, and well-being for Thames Waters Operations. And so that was predominantly um, everything from above ground in terms of wastewater management and, and, and water collection and treatment and below ground uh, wastewater um, distribution and, and also water distribution. So everything from turning the tap on, um, where that comes from, how to turn the tap on, obviously, when you flush it. Um, where it goes, gets treated and goes back to the place where we can collect it from again, but in a, in a cleaner, in a cleaner space than what we got it in the first place. And that was kind of the whole life cycle process that, that I, I had that responsibility for about 5,000 people in the business. Um, and I reported to the uh, chief operating officer at the time, um, different, different job, you know, it was, it was a client side operation. I didn't have the things, um, typical contractor things to, you know, worry about in terms of winning work and, and tenders and, and, and bids and, you know, um, which was, I guess, a refreshing challenge. Um, I think probably one of the most enjoyable things for me um, in a client role 
is seeing how much influence you can have across not just your organization, but your reach, your reach spreads. So um, you reach into your supply chain and their supply chain, and you actually, you can, you can see the work you're doing penetrating wider into the business. So, um, and wider into other businesses who then work in other contracts and it penetrates further. And for me, that was kind of um, a nice, a nice privilege to be involved in, in, in some of that work. Well, at Thames Water, and, and that was for about three years uh, that I was at Thames for. Um, Can you tell us about, about your role and your current role just now at Siemens then? So my, my current job at Siemens is the, the um, it's a longer title. It's the head of health, safety, um, sustainability and environment for, for Siemens, um, which is slightly different, actually, because, you know, there's a real focus on the environment sustainability part, which is... Um, is a little bit newer to me from from sustainability. I mean, we've had we've had the small e, so to say, um, but uh, Siemens takes this this very seriously, and so hence uh, my my last em, um, embarking on some more training. I'm, I'm at Cambridge at the moment doing their sustainability course qualification, and um, it's a it reminds me it reminds me of the process of learning. I actually, it's hard work. You know, it is very hard work, but it's very rewarding. The, 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 the process of learning is tough for me, but the reward is, is well worth it. But, um, so I'm, I'm, I'm partway through that sustainability qualification at the moment. But um, um, yeah, so the, 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 there is a good equal focus within, within Siemens across all of those functions, which is, which, is, which is nice. And it gives me something to focus on, which is different, again, that, that, that new level of learning. Um, but we look after quite a large part in uh, UK nationally. On, on rail infrastructure um it's uh you know it's, it's it's a really interesting business Siemens are you know the high performers of the industry that, that that they're in um the challenge here is different i'm not coming from a very you know i'm not in, in a heavy civil engineering environment which is um has lots of its traditional inherent dangers um there's lots of engineering safety challenges in in the work that we're in and there's lots of challenges around working on um live rail networks which um which is all very different, but I've come into an environment where actually the organization was performing quite well. And um, in fact, very well. And there were some questions around how do we take it to the next level? And so for me, this has been a focus around, um, you know, marginal gains. If you think about a cyclist and we're talking shaving seconds off the time, it's where, where, where are we, where do we need to have a nip and a tuck in terms of our performance to, to make sure we continuing uh, continue to strive to to move forward and there's been some some really uh interesting um plans we've been working on we've, we've been playing around um with some success on uh, cause and effect kpis mm -hmm. and this is where we we look at somewhere where we think needs an improvement you know we found that we found that piece that we need to perhaps trim or tuck we've um created um a KPI for what we believe would be able to measure that that the, the to measure the dial from where we are to where we want something to be, and then we target target that dial and target it hard, and then we swing that dial to a positive improvement, and then we do that for six months or however long it takes to shift the dial, and then we that's done with. We've shifted the dial. We'll now focus on the next marginal gain. Work out how we're going to measure that KPI. And then we'll target that and then, and then move it. We will measure and, and move it. And um, one of my favorite um, sayings I picked up from 
from Thames Waters' old uh, chief executive was um, a, a term on data analysis, insight and action. And I think in our profession, we can't go far wrong just living by that principle. You know, we, we need to be informed in the decisions that we make. And that data is very simply, you need the data in the first place. But in today's world, in today's connected world, there's an awful lot of data. And I think it's understanding the wheat from the chaff of that data and being able to analyze it. And really, um, from that analysis, you're going to get your insights. Get the insight is going to give you meaningful action. And I think what we often do as a profession is we get the data and we go straight to action. We don't analyze it and we don't get the insight out of it particularly well. And therefore, we have a problem. Um, and what often happens um, is, is that leads us down certain rabbit holes. And I'll refer back to a, a term that Nick used to say. And, um, and um, it, it, it's often, you know, when we talk about behavioral programs, there's always a, there's always, there's a resurgence and an appetite, you know, from the non-safety community, I'd typically say, um, you know, the, those that are in, in our industry, but not in a safety professional role, though, you know, behavioral programs are often the, the prescription to the misdiagnosis of a problem. And it tends to take us down a rabbit hole when there's actually many other things we need to do first to understand is behavior a problem and what part of behavior is a problem. So um, I think, you know, coming into Siemens, there's been a real focus on that marginal gains. There's been a real focus around targeting the nip and, the nip and tucks, that, sur that surgical precision about what we need to improve on. Um, but also not forgetting at the same time that we still work in a very, very dangerous environment with, 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 moving, with moving parts. Um, so, you know, and I've been here about a year now. Um, and then, you know, the last few months, we all know that, uh, that uh, the coronavirus and COVID-19 has added an absolute new dynamic to, to how we go about doing business, which has oh. certainly been another challenge. And can you tell us a bit more information about that then, Simon? What has Siemens put in place to manage the coronavirus and the fallout from it? You know, um, I, it's probably, I'll focus on what, what I've been certainly in, in involved with um, from the coronavirus. And what was it, I think, as a professional and, and, and being looked at by the business to say, you know, what is, how, how, you know, how do we get people to work safely? You know, um, at not at all costs, but how do we do it the right way? And... Um, you know, I must say I had a few sleepless nights trying to think about it. Um, I'm not an epidemiologist, um, so that's, a, that's certainly a challenge for me. But there's some basic principles that, that I came back to, and that's, you know, the hierarchy of controls. And, um, and how do you apply that in, in our risk assessment thinking to the coronavirus? Um, I think the challenge at the beginning of this and the challenge for everybody that there was, there was not a huge amount of government guidance on on how industry should go forward there was a two meter social distancing and it was you know it was if you can't maintain if you can't maintain two meter social distancing then it wouldn't finish the sentence um it's where you can maintain two meter social distancing so that, that there, was, there was a lot of innuendo in, in that and people and people's understanding but for me it very simply was okay let's go back to the foundations let's risk assess what we're trying to do Let's look at the hierarchy of controls. The hierarchy of control says eliminate. So do we need to do the job in the first place? And then actually, when we get down to the space of PPE, wearing of masks, that's really the last thing to do. So we went through some excellent exercises on um, redesigning the way we actually work. And um, I remember one job that we were preparing for, it was a shutdown, but it, it didn't go ahead in the end. 
um, and we've managed to identify 36 uh, pieces of work that would have required to interact within two meters of social distancing and with some clever thinking some re-engineering or processes and systems they've managed to narrow that down to six activities that would require to be within within two meters social distancing so i think it's great to have a little bit of healthy pressure something to refocus the mind and rather than do it the way we've always done it this has been a great opportunity to learn to do things differently and if we see this as an opportunity rather than a rather than an issue then I think you can only be better for it when you, when you come out the other end. The, the challenge now is, is we've had a few weeks of normality. The challenge is now, okay, we've got to start thinking about getting people back to work. Um, what, capacity, what capacity can we bring people back to work in? So this is around understanding our office capacity planning. So given the current rules around social distancing, um, what processes can we put in place to make sure that we have one that we understand the capacity that we can return to an office. So if we've got a hundred desks in an office and after some assessment, can we get 20 of those desks freed up? And then the next question is, if we can do that, who are the priority to, to get back to, to that office? Uh, and then we need to think about what well, we're currently thinking about people's home lives, their home situation. Do they have the facilities to work at home? Do they have um, the right environment to work effectively at home? Um, and, and if they are going to come back to work, can they get to work in, in a place that's, you know, can they do it safely? Can they drive their own vehicle? Um, and so it's the combination of looking at the, the office capacity and the workplace capacity for us, but it's also understanding the priority for those people. So risk assessing essentially the people to make sure we get the most vulnerable and those people that will benefit the most from coming back to the office in the first instance. So there's a combination of the two there, and that's the focus for us now. Okay. And during this time, it's probably been pretty difficult for a lot of your employees, mental health-wise, um, a lot of people being at home um, a lot more than they normally would be. What are Siemens looking at from a mental health point of view to try and support their staff? Yeah, so we've, we've, um, we, we've seen this as you know, trying to understand the problem. That, that is there um, and we've, we've done a few things. So we've done some surveys um, to understand where is it that people are genuinely you know, finding the challenge the most is, you know, is it around isolation, um, which a lot of it is, you know, be, being on your own and not, not having that community that you typically have around you. There's some, um, a lot came back about uncertainty. And this isn't, this isn't um, you know, news to anyone. This is what we expected, you know, um, uncertainty about the future. Um, job security, you know, the, all the things that you would expect that would be coming up. And actually, you know, things like PPE and the working environment, they're all way down the list. So people aren't thinking about the tactical, they're thinking about the stuff that's going to impact them or is currently impacting them the most. So we've done that survey. We then, um, we've taken that and we've, we've done some, um, what we call our global health focus days across the whole of, the whole, whole of Siemens, which is some real focus on leadership engagement taking that and understanding what's it going to take to shift the dial to, for people not to feel like they're isolated, to, to not feel uncertain and, and put some, some campaigns, some education around um, to, to make feel, people feel more uncomfortable, having things like coffee roulette, um, drop-in sessions on Teams where you know, we have open forums, people can just come on and, and, and talk to each other and drop off as they like and just an opportunity to catch up with people. Um, and, and then we, we're taking that a little bit stage further. So we've now got the feedback from some of that work that we've done. And then so for, for Mental Health Awareness Week next week, the theme is on kindness. 
So we have a number, again, we have a number of sessions on um, taking the feedback from that focus day and getting people's um, support and buy-in to, to, to help, again, change that dial from, from that isolation and focus and what we can do to bring people um, into the fold a bit more. But also we've got some workshops um, from some people that we use that are around, how can you be kind to yourself? What does kind look like? And then we have some panel discussions. I'm on one of the, I'm, I'm on one of the discussions. Um, and it's about what tools can you, you do? What things can you change? What are you in control of yourself? You know, you can't focus about the virus. It's there. Um, but what's within your control? And I think that's where you can get, um, you know, w where you can make a difference when you understand what's in your gift to, to control. There's no point getting frustrated in people that, that uh, don't want to wear their, you know, maintain social distancing. It can make you angry, um, but you can't control that. Control what you do and how you hold yourself and how you carry yourself. And that has a, has a, a good positioning for how you feel. Totally, totally. So where do you see yourself progressing to in the future then, Simon? and your current role or moving forward in the industry? You know, it's a really good, really good, um, it's a really good question. Um, I, I've started to develop a passion, I think, for sustainability and understanding, you know, what it really means. Um, and um, I either see myself challenging myself into um, perhaps a different function in that space just to, to you know get some some um, ignition in, in, a, in a new passion but I also feel like from a sustainability perspective you know a lot um, encompasses sustainability and who knows where the future goes but um, I think I, I think that um, the wrap of the bubble of sustainability is so encompassing that it covers so many facets of, of an organization and how they perform um, that that just has that have a pull to, towards that at the moment. But at the same time, you know, if, um, you know, for me, I think when is the right time? I'm not sure yet, but, uh, you know, we like the international travel. My wife and I like the international travel. And so, you know, an international move, um, you know, would be fine for us in the future. And, yeah. um, and I think, you know, some, some more countrywide, more global, um, opportunities for, for 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 bigger roles outside of the large multinationals in the uk i think yep. that um that's something that interests me too you know very, very you know lots of tactical operation position at the moment a very big team you know there's we we have our counterparts in in, in germany that have a team of one and, and they're managing europe or a global business mm -hmm. and uh, it's a different way of doing business it's um it's a different challenge it's a different way of working um so yeah I, I'm, I'm up for a challenge for sure um, not to say I'm not challenged at the moment. I'm very, I'm very well challenged, <laughs> certainly well challenged at the moment. But um, yeah, it's all exciting times. There's so much opportunity out there. Um, got to work through where we are at the moment, and um, and then see what see what arises in the future. But I think the the future is bright, mate, and, and the future is what you, you make of it. So um, definitely, definitely, um, and that's great. And over the years, Simon, you've given me some really good advice in my role when I work for you as a she specialist. Um, what advice would you give to someone starting out in health and safety just now? That's a great question. You know, that's a really great question. I think, um, I think first of all, I'd say to anybody starting out in their career, you know, do some looking around, do some understanding, some research, 
And, um, and I think in our profession, don't be put off by stigma. There is, um, you know, I remember joining um, in this profession and, and people saying health and safety and laughing, oh, I'll wear my hard hat then. Is that what you want me to do? And it's not about wearing hard hats. It's about wearing hearts and minds, you know, and it's, um, it's so much more than, than PPE. And I think people just need to reflect on, on that a little bit. Yes, there are industries where that becomes a focal point because it's a tick and flick almost exercise. But I think it's just to truly understand that it's our profession is more than just the sum of what people see it as um, in terms of UA or PPE. And, 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 um, and, I, and I do think that there are times we have to work through some history um, that, that's come from that, some baggage to work through our profession. Um, when, when I see behavior that's, you know, that, that, that's not great from our own, uh, from our own um, professionals, um, I think we have to we have to work through some of that and and um, and see our role. The role of a safety professional is different from a safety person. And I think when you come into this career, you have to you have to be ready to learn. I think there there is definitely um, I'm very passionate about the need for competence. You know, it's not just about experience. It's not just about education. It's getting the right match. Um, and that sometimes is not easy. You know, certainly for me, I, I, I didn't enjoy uh, the early stage of learning, but I, I, st- I, I, I learned to learn the process and the reward is very good. So I think stick through it, you know, put the hard yards in and you will be rewarded for the efforts. Excellent. Excellent. Thank you very much, Simon, for getting involved tonight. It's been fantastic getting this recording down. As I said at the start, this is the first of many health and safety podcasts that the IOSH West of Scotland branch are going to start to roll out. Um, is there anything else you wanted to sum up on, or are you happy with the content that we've got so far? No, no, I'm happy. Look, thanks for the um, thanks for the invite. It's been it's been a pleasure. Um, I think you know I like to talk, so you probably didn't have to prompt me prompt me too much. Um, and so no thanks for the opportunity to come here and talk to everybody and I hope you've got something out of it and um, yeah we'll uh, I'll probably see you very soon or sometime in the future sure excellent thanks for your time Simon thank no you no problem <laughs>